0: Well, the message this morning is on the practice of silence, part of the rule of life that we've been introducing, and the Bible, of course, says a lot about silence, and it teaches about silence in many different ways, and one of the interesting places where we read about silence is in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, verse 1, and of course, in heaven, there's ceaseless praise among the angels and among the elders and among the church-triumphant and then at one point, we read about 30 minutes of silence, and it's in anticipation of judgment, the calm before the storm, silence before judgment. And uh, Ashley is going to read for us this one verse. I am going to be with you. he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is a little odd that in a service about silence I'm going to do so much talking, but uh, uh, we have just one verse there, a very poignant message, silence in heaven for 30 minutes. I wonder How many of you have experienced silence for 30 minutes? It's very, very hard. And I encourage you to try it. No noise, no distractions, nothing but the the sound of your breath, the sound of your heart beating. All right, we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, or Revelation, Lamentations, to explore the meaning of silence, or at least one of the meanings of silence in Scripture. Lamentations 3. This is a very dour book. I don't know how many of you have read through the book of Lamentations. It's pretty grim. It's full of uh, despair and crying. And there are, especially in chapter 3, these wonderful promises of hope, uh, recalling the Lord's character. And embedded in these verses, you have a summons to silence that I want us to think about this morning. Revelation 3, beginning at verse 19... And reading to the end of verse 33, you can read along in your Bibles, or you can read the text as it is projected above me. Revelation, I keep saying Revelation, Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, and therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. And then this verse. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For No one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Our adversary, the devil... Richard Foster wrote, Majors in three things, noise, hurry, crowds. Our devil, the adversary, majors in three things, noise, hurry, crowds. We, in fact, live under a dictatorship of noise. We are bombarded with noise. From the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night, If there are no people around us, there is a phone talking to us, telling us what we need to do, where we need to go, and how we can get there. And in a dictatorship of noise, silence is the enemy. Without silence, we are easily manipulated. Because there are voices constantly speaking to us, trying to get us to do something, trying to get us to purchase something, to buy this good or that good, to vote for this politician or that politician. And because we live under a dictatorship of noise, so much of our lives is not proactive, but in fact reactive. Silence is often celebrated in Scripture And it's been celebrated in the great tradition, great Christian tradition. It's been celebrated by great Christian authors. Some of you may know the name George MacDonald. He was a Scottish novelist and clergyman And I want you to listen to how he talks about the death of Jesus and his entrance into heaven. Here's what he says. When the agony of death was over, when the storm of the world died away behind his retiring spirit, Jesus entered the regions where there is only life, and therefore all that is not music is silence. I bet you haven't thought about heaven that way. The regions where all there is is life, where, if there is not music, there is silence. Now, George MacDonald was the hero of C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, which are the letters from a senior demon, Screwtape, to his nephew, a junior demon, Wormwood, who was tasked with sabotaging the faith of a new convert. And Screwtape, in those letters, calls the devil's kingdom the kingdom of noise. And he writes to Wormwood, listen, we will make the whole universe a noise in the end. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I must admit that we are not loud enough. Well, how loud is it going to get? How much noise is necessary. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, and we are to remain in him. And for a vine to be fruitful, it needs a trellis. And we've been suggesting that a rule of life can be that trellis, a set of practices to reorder our lives around Christ, going to church weekly, praying at least three times a day, resting One day a week and one hour a day. We've been parking ourselves on rest. What does it mean to rest? And we've said that part of rest ought to be solitude. And I want to suggest this morning that silence is the completion of solitude. If solitude is withdrawing from people, then silence is withdrawing from noise and from words. We don't want to contribute to the kingdom of noise. We want to wage war with silence. And silence, you should know, is not an absence, but an awareness. It's muting your own voice in order to hear the voice of another. Silence is relinquishing control to God in prayer. Now, we're going to reflect on silence in terms of the book of Lamentations. Like I said a moment ago, probably not a book you've read or read often. It's a book of poetry about despair over the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of Israelites to Babylon. And yet, in this poetry of despair, there are embedded some very important lessons for us, one of which is about silence, and I want us to learn that lesson. So, we're going to track in, in uh, Lamentations 3 a pathway from despair to hope, and we're going to see that one of the hinges in the pathway is silence. So we'll look at despair, followed by hope, followed by silence. So the book of Lamentations provides a vivid description of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. It's hard to read the chapter without a tear in your eye, Because everything is destroyed. The city is destroyed, buildings are ruined, the streets are vacated. Many people have been taken captive, there are few survivors, and they are destitute. So destitute, the book says, that some of them resorted to secret cannibalism. The city is like a widow bereft of husband and children, hopeless, helpless, in despair. Now, what was especially so troublesome for Jeremiah and for the faithful in Jerusalem that remained was not the humiliation of defeat at the hands of the Babylonians. What was so troublesome for Jeremiah and the faithful that remained was not even the hunger or the homelessness. What was so troublesome was the seeming reality that God himself has departed that the living god had forsaken them because the temple had been destroyed the altars were in ruins there were no sacrifices being offered the priests were absent the law was not expounded and it seemed as if god himself had completely forsaken them and jeremiah in this passage enters the the sorrow and the struggle of the people of Jerusalem. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. God had driven him into darkness. He felt like a city besieged, a prisoner mauled by wild animals. And he knows that what he is seeing is God's punishment on Israel's sins. That's repeated in many places. Chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord has brought grief Uh, Upon us because of our many sins. Chapter 5, verse 7, our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear the punishment. So the Babylonians had destroyed the city. The buildings were ruined. The people were hungry and homeless, but the most troublesome feature, as I said, was the departure of the Lord. Where is God now? Verse 17. I have been deprived of peace, Jeremiah says. I have not forgotten, I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I hoped from the Lord. That's the despair. But then we read on and we note that there is a movement towards hope. Verses 21. Through 24. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Now there are three things in particular that Jeremiah calls to mind in the face of the destruction of Jerusalem. First, he calls to mind the Lord's great love. It's one word in the Hebrew, and it's a very special word. You know that God has established a binding relationship with his people, a relationship that we call a covenant. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this term, great love, refers to his loyalty to that relationship. And Jeremiah here says, because of God's great love, we will not be consumed. Interestingly, it's a word that appears often in the story of Hosea. And again, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Hosea, but Hosea was called to marry an unfaithful woman, and he is summoned in particular to love her with this great love, with a binding love, with what the Bible often calls steadfast love. Hosea is to learn about divine love through his own experience by marrying and being faithful to an unfaithful woman. Our sins, you see, are forgiven. Not because our lives are so good. Our sins are forgiven because God's love is so great. And it's so great that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be a sacrifice for our sins. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Well, perhaps you're suffering this morning, and perhaps your suffering is tied somehow to sin in your life. Perhaps what you're suffering is guilt over sins you've committed. Perhaps you're feeling this morning very much like the prodigal son who forsook his father, lived a reckless life, became convicted of his sin, of his guilt, and returned to the father, And confess to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I suspect this morning that if we have sharp consciences, and I hope and pray that we all have sharp consciences, there are times where we have this feeling, I'm not really worthy to be called your son because of the things that I've done. But Jeremiah wants us to recall the Lord's great love. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. How did the father respond to the prodigal son? He said, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to feast and celebrate because the son of mine who is dead is alive again. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed But Jeremiah doesn't only recall the Lord's great love. He also recalls God's unfailing compassion. End of verse 22. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Now, God's compassion is his disposition to people who are frail and weak and helpless. And this is good news for us because our problem, you recognize, isn't isn't only sin. Our problem is weakness, frailty. And perhaps you feel so weak some mornings you you don't want to get out of bed. Perhaps some days you feel so weak you want to throw in the towel. Here we need to see this promise, what God gives us every single morning, fresh compassions. His compassions never fail. They are fresh every morning Then thirdly, Jeremiah recalls that God himself is his portion. Verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. This is so important. God gives us the gift of forgiveness and the gift of restoration and the gift of compassion. But to truly enjoy those gifts, we need to enjoy the giver himself. The Lord is my portion, Self-pity, you see, results only in bitterness, ugly, ugly bitterness. We need to turn to the Lord, recall his great love and his unfailing compassions. So, Jeremiah moves from despair to hope, but what has changed? Nothing has changed. Nothing in his circumstances is any different than it was a moment before this recollection. The city of Jerusalem is still in ruins. People are still hungry. The majority of the population has been taken captive. Only one thing has changed, and that is his mindset. Yet he called to mind the Lord's great love, his unfailing compassions, and he had hope. But this recollection often occurs in silence. And so Jeremiah says, verse 27, Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. This silence, you see, is not self-initiated. It's divinely initiated. It's not a calming exercise. It is something the Lord has put on him. And the verb here is to weigh down or burden. So we are not the major actors here. God is the protagonist. He lays this silence on us. It is His silence. He is left with nothing more to say. He has warned the people of Israel for centuries again again and again, has summoned them to repentance, has urged them to walk in obedience. And now He has nothing left to say. He is silent And he puts that silence upon us, so we sit in that silence. Well, aren't we to take our burdens to the Lord and leave them there? This is a burden of a different kind. This is a burden that the Lord puts on us, and we need to feel it. It's the burden of knowing that his people have exhausted his patience it's the burden of knowing that his people have invited his anger and his judgment. It's the burden of knowing that punishment and judgment are now necessary. It's the burden of silence that you see in Jesus when he weeps over Jerusalem. Again, one of the most powerful images we have of Jesus. Luke 19, he approaches the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over it, weeps in silence. So here's the thing: there's a time to lament, and the book of Lamentations is full of it. But there's also a time for silence. And what? And silence says something. What does silence say? Well, let's conclude with these four things that silence says. First of all, silence indicates humility. Sil- silence indicates our inability to make sense of what we see happening in the world. Silence indicates our embrace of mystery, our helplessness. It is appropriate when someone says to you, the tests are positive, to be silent. It is appropriate for you when somebody says to you, I'm getting a divorce, to be silent. Silence indicates our inability to express what we feel, to express what we see, or to know how to react at all. Verse 37, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Silence is resignation to the Lord's powerful will. According to Rowan Williams, silence is, and I quote, "...a recognition." of something that all human beings, powerful and powerless, sooner or later share, being up against what can't be mastered and managed, and ultimately everybody is silent in the face of the utterly unmanageable, which is God. So silence says something, and silence, first of all, communicates humility. Secondly, silence indicates sorrow. There are times in life where things are so dark that words fail. We need to be silent. We need to process the darkness and do nothing but weep. Verse 48, streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. Sometimes in those very grim realities, to say something is to minimize the pain. And so we are silent. It's the one thing that Job's friends, by the way, did right. At the very beginning of the story of Job, after Job had experienced all the calamity, losing his possessions, losing his family, being struck with painful boils, the friends saw him. And they could hardly recognize him. And the text says that they wept. They put dust on their heads. They sat with him seven days and seven nights. And the text says no one said a word to him because they recognized that his suffering was so great. Silence indicates humility, silence indicates sorrow. Thirdly, silence indicates guilt. Silence invites self-examination. Verse 40, let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. We never suffer innocently. And sometimes our suffering is directly tied to our sin. A lot of suffering, of course, is not directly tied to our sin, but even in those scenarios, we don't suffer innocently. But what if our suffering is directly tied to our sin? Paul says in Romans 3 that now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. No more excuses. No more rationalizations. No more justifications. Confronted with our guilt, we are silent. Now here we must remember the silence of Jesus. Jesus. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Uh, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Before Caiaphas, Jesus is silent. Before Pontius Pilate, Jesus is silent. He doesn't say anything. And his silence, you see, is his embrace of the accusation, of the charges, of the condemnation. His silence, you see, is the embrace of the cross itself. And when you are struck with your guilt, you need to be silent, no excuses, no rationalizations, but in that moment, you need to remember the silence of Jesus for you, because Jesus embraced for you the silence of guilt let the charges stick, embraced the condemnation, and accepted the cross. For whom is Jesus silent? And for whom does Jesus accept the cross? For you and for me and for all who put their trust in him. Then fourthly, lastly, silence indicates patient hope. Verse 49, my eyes will flow unceasingly Without relief until the word of hope, the Lord looks down from heaven. Now, silence births hope because it gives us time to recall God's character, His great love, His unfailing compassion. Which is why immediately after these verses about silence, we read this testimony, one of the brightest in the whole book, verses 31 and following, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is uh, his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. We must not be a kingdom of noise. We must wage war with silence. And silence is not an absence, it's an awareness. Silence is muting our own voice to be attentive to the voice of another. Silence is relinquishing control to God himself. If we are to have a trellis on which the vine can be fruitful. We need a set of practices to reorder our lives around Christ. Go to church weekly, pray at least three times a day, rest one day a week, rest one hour in the day. Solitude should be part of that rest. Silence completes the solitude. Withdrawal from people, withdrawal from noise, And from words, so you can express humility, so you can express sorrow, so you can express guilt, so you can express patient hope, recalling God's great love and unfailing compassions. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we are so often inclined to run from silence and to keep noise in our ears. And even when we are alone, we want to keep talking within ourselves and not leave you space to convict us, perhaps, of our sin or convince us of your great love. We pray that you would help us day by day to carve out time, to be alone and to sit in silence and to grow to trust you, to grow comfortable living in a world where we don't control anything, where everything is managed by you. And we pray ultimately that in the space of silence, we grow still closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him, to know him, to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.